Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, September 11th, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebick with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Yero, and this week's fish from its vermiculated dorsum all the way to its vermilion ventrum is one of the most charming fish in America. You see what I did there? Charming. It's the brook trout. That's very nice. And we have two guests. We've got Emily Hill, a fish enthusiast and biological science technician at our Lower Great Lakes Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office. And we have Tom Hoffman, former Aquatic Habitat Restoration Group Leader, also at that office. So greetings and salva Linus to both of you. We're very happy to have you. See what I did, guys? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's like, yeah. Okay, so Brooktail, this is a gorgeous fish. And I'd really like to just start with, you know, how would you best describe this fish to someone who's never seen one before? Um, I may be a little bit biased, but brook trout are the most beautiful fish and probably the most colorful fish I've ever seen. Um, They have a dark green back that is camouflaged with a vermiculated or warm-like marbling. It's greatly contrasted by their bright orange belly, um, and it's highlighted by their orange fins that have bright white edges that are lined in black. Honestly, it's probably one of the sharpest color contrasts on a paint palette that you can find in nature. And against their dark background... Their multicolored spots of pale yellow and red outlined in bright blue halos really pop. Yep. And they've got those light spots. So I know Guy mentioned char, and that's something I use to think about, like if it's a char or a trout. Interesting, these guys are called yeah. trout, but they do have those light spots on dark skin versus dark spots. Why are these fish so pretty? Like, what's their point? The more colored the males are, they tend to attract females. So it's a pattern of attraction like you find a lot in nature, primarily birds, but obviously... You have these trout that get really colored up. Some of them are colored all year long and they just get more brilliant during the spawning season. And some of them are very pale throughout the normal season. And then, you know, when the water starts getting colder and they start getting closer to the spawning season, they just, to use the term that Emily used, just really pop. Mm-hmm. Take the prettiest colors you've ever seen for mm-hmm. a fall landscape, the oranges and the reds, and make them more vibrant. And that's what they look like. They really do. It's amazing. So this is a species that Katrina and I have actually kicked around trying to figure out how to approach it in the past, because there's lots of ways that you can talk about the big ones up in Maine and up in Canada and the Salters or down in Georgia, where you're in these really small trickles and they're losing habitat due to climate change. Or, you know, I grew up out west in Utah, where, you know, they're an invasive species knocking out cutthroat trout here and there everywhere. And so there's lots of ways that you can talk about this fish and its importance. Where are you guys located and why are brook trout important there? So we're located at the Lower Great Lakes Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office. It's in Basin, New York, which is in between Buffalo and Rochester. And we primarily work with brook trout in smaller streams. But as you mentioned, there's brook trout that use more productive, stable coastlines and abatements of the upper Great Lakes. And these are nicknamed coasters. And there is also brook trout that are nicknamed salters which is, you know, when they spend a portion of their life in brackish or slightly salty water, shore of Cape Cod to Labrador, and that changes their appearance. So around here, we are in essentially Lake Plain. So the waters that support brook trout in this area tend to be cold water primary streams. So you're not going to get them closer to the lakes in New York but you're going to find them in some of the hills in areas where you have almost exclusively spring-fed streams 
Because of that, most of our brook trout around here tend to be on the smaller side because they're relegated to these tiny streams, some of which you can step across. That's what the brook trout populations are around here. And with climate change, land use patterns, our populations tend to be fragmented, which is why we developed some of these programs in order to try to preserve these populations because the connectivity has become very difficult. You're not getting the gene flow between them. So it's a challenge for our brook trout here. We need to preserve the cold water. And when I think of brook trout, I think of like, yeah, kind of small, really pretty streams forested. Mm. Is that kind of their niche? Is this like they need the shade and trees and kind of the habitat that comes along with that? Or I guess another way to phrase this is what kind of microhabitats do they need and are important to them? Yes, I think that hits it right on the head. They can grow over two feet in length and weigh up to 15 pounds in other places in the Great Lakes. But here they're in small streams that are, have great cover and they're typically about six to 10 inches. But there have also been max lengths of brook trout recorded at just over 33 inches, which is huge for brook trout. It's like a salmon. Dang. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Cool. Yeah, we don't see that kind of size around us. And for reference, that's about over the length of two bowling pins stacked end to end. What are these guys doing in these small streams where y'all are? Well, around here, the period where they tend to go quote-unquote dormant or where they have reduced activity is actually in the summer, not the winter. So when the water temperatures go up, they will hunker down and hide in some of the cooler areas during the day. They will more actively feed at night. They're going to be definitely diurnal patterns to their activity. And that's why covering the stream is very important so that they can get out of the sun and out of the warmer water during the day. There's something interesting about this fish that we should bring up that's rare sort of among the salmonids, at least as I'm concerned. It's a fall spawner, right? It is. It's very much tied to stream temperature. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Spawning for brook trout generally occurs around September 15th. That's actually when we stop our electrofishing efforts in our streams around here. Some of these streams, they are groundwater driven. So temperatures are fairly stable, but still when they get into that 50 degree range, 48, 50, 52 is when it really does spur them to start spawning activity. And well, all salmonids build reds, lots of them like your bigger salmon, they build them so that the flow of the river itself kind of goes through and cleans out the eggs in the nest and keeps it oxygenated. We don't always have those, especially since they're small streams. So what they do is they pick areas with groundwater seeps. So you have the upwelling that keeps mm. the eggs oxygenated and the nests free of sediment. And that can be in sand. We have some sand-driven streams around here where you don't have any gravel. But you have a nice clean patch of sand where you have an upwelling, and that's good enough as long okay. as there's sufficient flow and oxygenation. And what are they feeding on? Around here, they're not quite big enough to be pisciferous, which is fish eating, so mm -hmm. lots of bugs. You, you have these cold water streams where you tend to have the healthier macroinvertebrate populations, so they're feeding on the macroinvertebrates. They're feeding on some of the terrestrial insects that may either fly into the water, either get caught there or take a drink. It's going to be bugs. It's going to be some worms that get in there. It is going to compose most of their diet. I'd say brook trout are pretty much generalists, and they're the opposite of picky eaters. And as Tom mentioned, they're crepuscular. So like white-tailed deer, they're most active at dawn and dusk, and that's when their breeding frenzy occurs. Fishermen take note of all this information. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, match the hatch. <laughs> Thank you. 
say we're in a forested stream, there's brook trout. What are some of the other species you might come across, whether they're native species that maybe somehow interact with brook trout or non-native species? Well, a lot of times in a brook trout stream, you won't have a lot of species diversity. You'll have some sculpins, so they're on the bottom. You might have some dace, but there are some species you just generally don't find because the water tends to be very cold, which is how they outcompete a lot of the other species. Right. Their temperatures are probably pretty similar, you know, in their mid-range to a refrigerator at home. There tend to be your less productive streams. You're going to have fish that can handle the cold. You're not going to have a lot that can, or at least can only marginally handle it. And that's where the brook trout thrive. That's where they do their best. So you're not going to see a lot of diversity in some of these true brook trout streams. Okay. You're worried about climate change at all and temperature of these streams getting warmer? That's one of the bigger issues for us. For sure. Yeah. Climate change and warming up the streams. That also brings in other trout species that can outcompete the brook trout, such as rainbows or brown trout. We've seen that when streams increase in temperature, the browns and the rainbows really thrive and kind of push out the brook trout. Yeah, that's why they're relegated right now to the headwater streams is because some of our other streams that did hold them in the past now have warmed up. They've been opened up your farmland, your urban settings or somewhat urban settings, park settings, and the water temperatures warm up. They're relegated to the headwaters. So if the headwaters start warming up, we're going to lose our brook trout around here. And that's why I believe our program is so important is that we are trying to save these pockets of brook trout that we have around here. We're doing whatever we can to protect the groundwater, to protect the riparian areas, and to protect these headwater streams to preserve our fragmented populations of brook trout. We've talked on this show, a lot of times it's been out west, though, talking about these big dams, 300-plus feet acting as barriers to fish migration. Of course, I imagine that would keep a six-inch brook trout from migrating, too. But... I know down in Georgia, we have issues with just perch culverts, stream crossings and things that a normal person walking by might not look at that and think of, oh, that's keeping fish from moving upstream, but it does. And so what do you guys have acting as barriers out there in New York? A little bit of everything, but one of the programs I started when I got here was a connectivity program where we surveyed culverts everywhere. We did boatloads mm-hmm. of culvert surveys, four, five, six hundred a year. And we found that the culverts were more of a barrier for whatever reason, be it, you know, undersized, be it a velocity barrier, be it actually a perched culvert, than dams or other more physical barriers that people think about. So that is where we've targeted a lot of our effort around here. Yes, we've taken out some dams that have helped brook trout, but the majority of what we have done has been culverts and just increasing the connectivity. And some of them are just seasonal barriers, but Some of them are full barriers. They're not getting anywhere or there's one-way passage downstream and never back upstream. So connectivity, it's been a buzzword for us for a bunch of years now, and it's been a focus of a lot of what our efforts have been. It's crazy how many culverts are on the landscape. If you think of a road system, it's basically, yeah, wherever a road crosses a stream. And for folks not familiar, it's just basically a tube through the road prism and they're everywhere. So I can imagine, yeah, it's a big survey. Are you also serving where you're finding brook trout? while you're doing these surveys or a different effort? Yes, we do culverts that we think might be barriers. And we do some backpack electrofishing, which if you've ever seen Ghostbusters, is pretty similar. <laughs> That's a good description. <laughs> Thank you. What they look like, yeah. Um, we put backpacks on and they generate an electrical field in the water and the fish are attracted to the anode. It's kind of like an involuntary muscle twitch and it 
scans the fish for a few seconds, so we're able to scoop them, and we can get metrics on the fish, such as their weight or their length, and check for the overall health. It was like the best summer of my life was being on an electrofishing team. So interesting to see all the fish that, yeah, are attracted to those. That's really yeah. neat. We're still going to have to have roads that cross mm-hmm. streams that aren't using like span bridges. So so what's a good culvert for fish passage? And then when you're thinking about these projects, how much does it cost versus, you know, say replacing the dam or something like that? Is it cost effective for the work you're trying to do in restoring these populations? Best case scenario is a bridge so that the stream yep. functions naturally below it. Can't always do that, quite obviously. The next best case is an open bottom. So you still have natural stream bottom in there and it's functioning like it should, plenty wide enough to take floodwaters along with base flow. And always do that because there are budgetary restrictions. So the next one is a culvert, an enclosed culvert, but has natural substrate in the bottom. Be a little bit more narrow so you can have a few issues with increased flows and things like that. So you may have to come up with some ways to ensure that the substrate stays in the culvert. As far as cost goes, we've had some cost as little as like twenty or thirty thousand, but we've also had some cost as much as two, three hundred thousand, depending on size, obviously, composition. Is it a steel culvert? Is it a concrete culvert? Does it have footers? You know, is it natural bottom? You know, is it concrete bottom? So there's a very wide range. With our brook trout projects, we're dealing generally with smaller streams. It's interesting from an investment standpoint, Guy, you mentioned like how much do these cost? And if you look at cost short term versus long term and like road replacement, road maintenance, what's the cost to these fish populations? I think that investing in those culverts that let our streams and rivers behave naturally is a really good investment something really important to think about but it, there that time frame is important to consider when looking at the cost so it, it is and that's the ongoing fight that i have with folks when i propose these projects especially when you're dealing with towns town highway departments county highway departments state highway departments even it generally costs a little bit more than what they want to do it doesn't cost that much more but the fight i have to have with them is they say okay if this washes out i got to replace it and it's more money than i was going to spend The thing that I always have to try to convince them of is, but if you do it the right way, if you do it this way, you won't have to replace it. We've taken care of 500-year floods. We have sized it so that you're not going to have to, or at least not in your lifetime. So that's the ongoing fight. The ideal stream crossing would allow the stream to act as a stream upstream within and below the culvert. So that's the kind of project we Mm -hmm. tend to lean towards. And we're talking a little fish here and they need that natural substrate to be able to like navigate the water flow. If there's high flows, they need places to hide behind and get out of the current. So yeah, I think that natural bottom piece is really important. When you're evaluating, like there's more culverts out there to fix than you have the funds or the time to do, I imagine. So how do you pick which projects are the best to pursue? A couple ways of going about it because we can't always do the highest priority ones. We try. What the money here is, it's given to us to distribute to cooperators to get these projects done. So we need to have someone willing to spearhead these projects. We have to marry the highest priorities for the brook trout with the priorities of cooperators where we can work. There are some places we just can't work. Folks don't want us there. It's a little bit of trying to figure out who we can work with, where we can work, and who's going to actually run the majority of the project. What's the funding source for these? 
We get some fish passage money, but the majority of our funding comes from the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, and we call it GLEARY. This is appropriated by Congress to the EPA, and then the EPA divides it up to different groups. They have different categories where they spend that money. The one that we fall under is the Habitat Restoration Template. A portion goes to the Upper Great Lakes, and then a portion goes to us, and that's where we fund our projects out of. Emily, is there a project that stands out to you in terms of an example where you could really say, okay, this is what it was like. We had this really nasty culvert and now we've got this beautiful like fish passage culvert. One that comes to mind is Crow Creek. It was a small culvert in Orangeville, New York, and it constructed a stream and it was part of the upper Tonawanda watershed, which flows into the Niagara River. And this culvert influenced water quality and habitat conditions for 589 miles of downstream tributaries from there. But we noticed that population numbers of the brook trout declined with a notable decrease in the population at Crow Creek. What we found here was this was a man-made issue. It is a properly sized and placed culvert. And we were able to replace that with lots of partners and willing landowners. And we replaced a three-foot culvert to a 13-foot structure. Oh, nice. And That's a big upgrade. That's awesome. It was. Yeah. Um, we also coordinated with, like, Trout Unlimited and built some lunker boxes in there. It's an acronym for Little Underwater Neighborhood Keepers Encompassing um, Rio Tactic. But it's basically a fancy yeah. way of saying it's a structure that provides cover for fish that face upstream. That's awesome. Yeah, and they also stabilize the stream bank. So in addition to this, we did some wood insulation. We did have to remove some trees at this project, but we planted native shrubs and trees above and below um, to establish riparian buffer zones. This is something that we like to do um, after we do culvert replacements as well. So we took some giant logs and put them in the stream. And this, you know, helped with fish passage and to increase spawning habitat. Yeah, you know how we love our acronyms, right? You know, we can't even come up with something like this without making it an acronym. <laughs> it was the last two, the, what was it, encompassing reotaxis at, at the end? Yeah, encompassing reotactic. Encompassing, and I wasn't expecting there to. Be, I thought they'd just be like, "Okay, Lunker." We'll call it Lunker. The fact that they actually made it a good acronym caught me off guard. Oh, yeah. so, oh, yeah. but it's a good oh, yeah. one though. I'm not. Oh, yeah. I'm not I laughing like at it because I don't like it. No, that's good. <laughs> the big problem with this was it was misaligned. So if you can imagine, you have the stream coming up the road at about a 45 degree angle. Well, they put the culvert in perpendicular, as they almost always do. So it had to take practically a 90 degree turn left to go in and right to come out. So took out the road, pulled out the culvert, aligned the stream correctly, removed a ton of sediment because it backed up a lot of sediment. And that was one of the bigger problems because when the flow did come up, it mobilized some of that sediment. So downstream, it was clogging the nests and the reds were suffocating. Upstream, the channel was a little bit narrower because it was spread out due to backing up and having your sediment deposited. You actually had a very wide, shallow stream channel. So we actually mm -hmm. dug it out. So yep. it's much more narrow, but deeper and, you know, lined it with gravel, lined the culvert with gravel. So it's vastly different than it was before. And we added the lunkers on the bends because we had to keep a couple meander bends to slow the velocity down a little bit. So that it didn't just race right through the culvert and undo everything we were trying to do. The uh, lunkers are six feet into the bank, but you wouldn't know it. Where they are, the surface area is only about three feet, but they go back under 
probably an additional mm-hmm. three to four feet to give that area for the fish to hide. But also what it does is it slows down the water, but as the water goes in there, it cleans them out so they don't get silted in. So now you have a couple additional meanders that you did not have before the culvert was installed. And then below it, we couldn't do that. So what we did is we put a couple of grade control structures in. We had to take down a few trees. It just is what it is. We planted native shrubs and trees above and below to establish riparian buffer zones. This is something that we like to do after we do culvert replacements as well. The trees that we took down, we picked several nice-sized trees and put them in as wood control structures. We didn't want anything Mm -hmm. artificial. So it backs up the water, creates a little bit of a pool, and then a cascade, and a pool, and a cascade. And Mm -hmm. that has been effective. I mean, we saw fish move through it in, what, about a month? It was a month and a half. It looks vastly different, more natural. Yes, we have some artificial structures in there, but we like to put them in looking natural and not, you know, unnatural, like big rocks. I like to look around a particular stream and say, what would normally be here if we weren't here? It would be wood. It would be a wood-driven stream, and that's why we did that. Mm-hmm. I love talking about culverts, and I love fish passage, but it's neat. So you've got, like, contractors, engineers. You've got fish biologists who, like, know what the habitat should look like. It really is a team kind of effort. Are there any proactive measures moving forward in terms of road building that you could just provide some general tips, like what does a good road crossing structure what would it look like if we were to just start fresh, no like new culverts that are undersized or not placed correctly, just some general thoughts on placing a culvert and what to think about? I guess I'd just emphasize first and foremost, you know, we want structures to, you know, mimic the stream and, you know, you want the stream to act like a stream above, within and below. So, you know, the open bottom structures are preferred, something with substrate within the structure. It's taking a look at the stream and within your structure, mimicking what it looks like upstream and down. The stream knows what it wants to do. So look and see what it's doing and then try to replicate that. Yep. I'd encourage folks to step off a road every once in a while and look at a culvert. And it's really just kind of fascinating. I mean, you drive every day and you cross hundreds of them and you wouldn't even notice them. But to see a bad culvert versus one that's been restored, I'm sure that's a pretty neat looking site. So thanks for describing that a little more. I know in the 70s that New York designated the brook trout as the state fish. Because they don't get as big as your introduced brown trout and rainbow trout, where does this fish fall in the psyche of the typical New York angler? So the species was first adopted, like you said, in 1975. But I just want to throw in that brook trout is a state fish for eight other states. And it's the provincial Dang. fish of Nova Scotia and Canada. So there's lots of admirers nice. of brook trout. It's nice. pretty cool. And as far as fishing, I don't think any other fish has defined fishing in eastern North America and has influenced Western cultural interests in angling more than this species. It's been stocked for years for sport fishing since the 1800s. And it's been a really popular sport fish, especially for people who enjoy the fly fishing. Okay. My grandpa, and you know, he passed on fishing to my dad who passed it on to me. He grew up fishing out there in eastern Pennsylvania on like the Schuylkill River mm. and those, those systems mm. and catching brook trout. And, you know, he'd be out there and he'd be pulling in fish after fish. And the folks would ask him, hey, what are you using? He had the fake fly called the Nunnamocker that he'd always tell him. Like, oh, I caught him on a <laughs> Nunnamocker. And of course that didn't exist. But uh, so, so, yeah, no, it, it's... And at least in my personal family history, brook trout's played a big role in that. I've, I think it's this one of the, like, I think the second most common trout that I think I've caught. It's a, it's a good one. And mm. of course, beautiful. 
What was he uh, actually using, Guy? You know, I, sure I, I don't you know. know. I, oh. I don't, I can't honestly no. say. It was a Nunnemacher. Okay. So didn't get passed down. <laughs> oh, I'm sure, he, I'm sure he kept that close to the best. Fishermen yeah. don't like to give up their secrets. <laughs> no, but I've do, caught him on all kinds of things, though. Do you two fish? And if so, yeah, how do you do it? I do fish. Actually, since moving to Western New York for a position here, I learned how to fly fish. My coworkers introduced me to the hobby. And I became hooked. It's been great. Usually, I'm targeting steelhead or brown trout, but just getting out there for brook trout has been really a meditative experience. You're fishing in smaller streams that have a great canby cover and it's forested. But I've talked to lots of people who like to brook trout fish, Mm -hmm. and it seems like there's quite a variety of tactics to use. Brook trout are not picky eaters and will really eat any organism. So their indifference to specific types of food makes them a perfect family-friendly fish to angle for. And since they're found in small streams or lakes, there's different tactics that you can use. But it's really important, as Tom mentioned earlier, to match the hatch. So when you get to a water body, take a look around you and notice the insects that are in the area. If you're using flies, match the pattern of the insects that are around you, and you'll have great success. You can use a small dry fly or use a lake clear wobbler or spoons to angle for them in larger lakes. You also have success with a woolly bugger or a plug or a spinner, but simple baits in general work really well for the species. When handling brook trout or really any fish, just make sure your hands are wet and keep the fish in the water as much as possible because this helps to avoid damaging, you know, the fish's protective slime and keeping them in the water will increase the fish's survival rate. What's your advice for not getting snagged in trees when you're fishing those tight, smaller streams? That is very tricky. <laughs> that is tricky. I don't have any advice to not get snagged. I would just say bring lots of tackle with you. Yes, for okay. sure. <laughs> and lots of flies too. I mean, so you, when you show up, you want to have yeah. like some yeah. options to choose from. So you're not like, oh, yeah. I guess you could also be tying on the spot too. But. For sure. Yeah, I know some folks who do that. Around here, you know, you have a lot of people who want to catch the big browns and the rainbows and stuff like that. But there is a smaller but very enthusiastic contingent that exclusively hit these small brook trout streams. And these are a lot of the folks who actually have come to us and said, hey, we have a brook trout stream here. It looks like there's a problem. Can you come take a look? No, oh, cool. It's great because we have a lot of folks on the ground who are not shy about calling up and saying, can you take a look at this and maybe help out over here? We, we've done projects because someone has been fishing in a stream and said, I see a problem and brought it to my attention. And we've drummed up some money and helped them out. So the angling contingency around here is great, and they're very protective of the resource, which is awesome. That's great. Down in Georgia, we got a guy, because we're down at like the real southern end of their range, and he's a big brook trout enthusiast, and he is like personally funding an eDNA research project to try and figure out which streams in Georgia still hold brook trout. So I wow. just wanted to echo your sentiment there about you know people being passionate about these, yeah. Are you all using eDNA at all to locate these streams too? Or Yeah, we're actually looking to using eDNA potentially this fall to identify sites and to check old sites that we've done genetic work at. We're coming up with a sampling plan now, and it's basically a long snorkel tube, another backpack that mm-hmm. will collect the water and also filter it, and then we send it to our lab, and they can identify the species that are present in that water. And for folks that don't know, the E is environmental. DNA, right? So you're yes. finding DNA in the water. It's super cool. It's a great resource. It's going to help out a ton. Whereas, you know, when I started in this position 2013, it wasn't really a thing. It was just starting out. We had to just 
put the backpack on, look at a map, go out and say, well, let's try here and see if we have mm-hmm. any. But it was a crapshoot, right? It's let's guess. And sometimes you guess wrong. And sometimes you've missed one that you had no idea was there. This allows us to cover a lot more territory and find some of these populations that we didn't know about. And yes, we do occasionally find some, which is really exciting. That's cool. Are there any best practices for private landowners, whether they're in agriculture or just folks living along streams where they could help? Yeah, I would say leaving, you know, a riparian area is great. A lot of fields we've seen have cleared right up to the stream. And this doesn't really, you know, allow a buffer for catchment of sediment or even erosion Mm -hmm. in the stream. Yeah, that's number one. A nice buffer. Okay, get those buffers. Uh, Down in the south, there's a state mandatory riparian buffer, but... If you're farming, there's an ag exemption where you can clear right up yeah. to land, which seems kind of counterintuitive when you're looking at it from, you know, a fish biologist perspective. Is that the same up there? It is. And the funny thing is we have done projects for farmers. You have all of this sediment that's being transported into the stream and then downstream, and they're losing their farm roads, they're losing their fields, and they come to us, can you help? Like, well, yes, we can help. We can fix this, but again, some of it's going to be a Band-Aid unless you really allow a riparian area to develop on these stream banks. You know, we can line them with rock, which looks incredibly artificial, but that's sometimes what we have to do if we're not allowed to actually develop those riparian areas. So, yeah, they have the same ag exemptions up here. I imagine it's a pretty steep bank as well. Do you have to, like, try and reshape that? Because I imagine, that you know, planting a riparian buffer on top of that big steep bank might do some, but then it might just get undercut and everything falls in. And then what was that all for? Yeah, we try to match elevation and try to match the natural course of the stream as much as possible. There's a couple ways you can do it. You can just grade them as a gentle slope, or what you can do is put in what they call a floodplain bench. So you have your salwag, your main flow of the stream, water comes up a little bit, and then it spreads out on your bench. And Velocities are reduced. You don't have the erosion. You don't have the undercutting. And then you have another sloped area of the bank where if the water comes up more, then it'll spread out even more. There are ways you can even do it in urban settings. If you have a nice wide bank that you can just go in and really grade nicely, that's great. But you don't have that in urban settings. And we have put some of these things to help reduce the erosion and decrease the velocities so that you don't get the bank failure that encroaches on people's property. It's a lot of work. I'm just kind of thinking like, you know, we've got folks listening on the show. And if you become a fish nerd and a fish enthusiast, you're looking at the habitat and you're like, oh man, the bank is this and the culverts. And it, yeah, it's, there's a lot and there's a lot to be fixed, but good job on doing all that work. It sounds like you guys are making progress. It's awesome. It's fun. It's great to go in and see a system where it needs your help. And when you leave at the end of the day, you know, you've helped it and you know, you've helped the stream and the whole ecosystem. It's great. We love it. Yes, I agree. It's very fulfilling. And there's other offices that do the same work in Region 3. Ashland, Alpena, and Green Bay also have the Brooktrout program that's been initiated at the same time as ours. I was going to ask you that next. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, our Fish and Wildlife Conservation offices, they're not super well-known. They're not as well-known probably as the hatcheries where you can actually go and visit. But yeah, lots of neat stuff coming out of these offices. So very good job. Okay, so why should people care about this fish? Not just the trout anglers, but the people who live in your area and kind of beyond. Why Why should we care about this fish? Anyone should care because brook trout are an indicator species. So they reflect the health or the quality of the water system. So if brook trout disappear, you know there's factors that are impairing the waterways. They indicate clean and cold water. 
and some healthy habitat characteristics. We've got these little pockets of beauty too. It's like, I don't know, we have some of these non-native species where they just, they do well everywhere, but like all these native fish we cover on the show, like they're really beautiful and they're really unique and we don't want to lose that diversity. But Tom, do you have anything yeah, to add? Exactly. No, just, we're trying to promote more native species. It seems like throughout my career, we've been more and more promoting native species and this is the only char native to the Northeast. So it really is important not to let this go. It evolved here. It thrives in cold water. It's an amazing species. It's much more resilient than we give it credit for. We're trying hard to kick it out of here with all of our land use activities and it's hanging on in some of these areas. We really need to protect it and ensure its existence as long as we can. Yep. It's just lovely. Beautiful fish. It is. Thank you both. This was amazing. I really enjoyed the culvert talk too. I love culverts. Good culverts. So appreciate it. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you. All right. Get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially the brook trout. And yeah, check out those new channel spanning culverts. They're awesome. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. You guys spell char with one R or two R's? Curious. One, I believe. I have seen it both ways. Not to be, you know, wishy-washy here, but I have seen it both ways. I think when I have used it, I've mainly spelled it with one. Perhaps that is not correct, but that's probably more how I've seen it spelled with one R. Guys got a big smile. What's why? <laughs> no, no, I, I, I prefer a one R. I'm glad that our, our guests are uh, bolstering me in that respect. <laughs> That's the right way to do it.